to underscore the importance of separation from the legal function, the guidance notes that the compliance officer should not lead or report to the entity's legal or financial functions. Whenever possible, the compliance officer's sole responsibility should be compliance. Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkov. Well, hello, everyone. This is Mike Volkov. Happy New Year to everybody. Happy 2024. Hope you had a great holiday season. This is our first episode of the new year. And it's actually picking up something that occurred in November of last year, but nonetheless is important. And I expect to do a webinar on this just because of the importance that I sort of ascribe to the HHS, Office of Inspector General, comprehensive compliance guidance that was issued in November of 2023. The healthcare industry has been a leader in compliance. Going back to the 1990s, HHS elevated compliance program requirements for healthcare companies. Many of these innovations stuck and translated into basic strategies that have become essential to the compliance industry. Most importantly, in the 1990s, HHS's inspector general affirmatively pushed for separation of the legal and compliance functions, resulting in ultimately broad industry acceptance of an independent compliance function. So in November of 2023, the OIG issued a comprehensive document called the General Compliance Program Guidance, and I'm going to shorten it by GCPG which outlines important compliance guidance issues for the healthcare industry. A lot of that, however, translates, and I think there's a lot of best practices, there are a lot of good industry standards, there are a lot of good pieces of advice with regard to compliance in general that I think it's really important to take a look at it. And the GCPG is organized around the seven established elements of an effective compliance program. And it incorporates the OIG's experience over 25 years, prior guidance, experience monitoring corporate integrity agreements, industry stakeholder meetings, and lessons learned from investigations and enforcement actions. So the seven elements include written policies and procedures, compliance, leadership, and oversight, training and education, effective lines of communication with the compliance officer and disclosure or reporting program, enforcing standards, consequences, and incentives, risk assessment, auditing, and monitoring, responding to detected offenses, and developing corrective action initiatives. The guidance includes a discussion of each of these program elements and provides important tips for compliance. Again, it's focused on the healthcare industry, but I do think there are a lot of issues that translate into overall compliance requirements. Most importantly, and kind of the headline that came out in November around this and what everybody spoke about was the repeating and underscoring of the reasons for a strong independent compliance function, along with best practices and other strategies for ensuring an effective compliance program and a robust compliance function. And compliance leadership is, again, a really important point made by the guidance. 
And it directs that every organization has to appoint and support a chief compliance officer who has the authority, stature, access, and resources necessary to lead an effective and successful compliance program. The guidance directs that a compliance officer should, one, report either to the CEO with direct and independent access to the board or to the board directly. Two, have sufficient stature within the entity equal to other senior leaders. Three, demonstrate unimpeachable integrity, judgment, assertiveness, and approachable demeanor, and the ability to elicit the respect and trust of employees. And four, have sufficient funding, resources, and staff to operate a compliance program. The primary responsibilities for a compliance officer, they refer to it in the guidance of the compliance officer, but they mean the chief compliance officer, the head of the staff. Oversight and monitoring the compliance program, advising the CEO, board, and other senior leaders on compliance risks, chairing the compliance committee, which is a suggested and almost a mandated structure, regular reporting to the board, revising the compliance program as required, coordinating with HR to ensure that employees or potential employees are screened before appointment or engagement, to ensure that no excluded individuals or entities are employed or appointed at the entity, coordinating with other relevant components such as internal audit, risk, quality, information technology, and conducting independent investigations and recommending changes or corrective actions as needed, developing policies and programs to encourage personnel to report suspected fraud or other misconduct without fear of retaliation. To underscore the importance of separation from the legal function, the guidance notes that the compliance officer should not lead or report to the entity's legal or financial functions. Whenever possible, the compliance officer's sole responsibility should be compliance. Now, the guidance directs, and I made a mention here about establishing a compliance committee to aid and support the compliance officer. And the compliance committee should meet no less than quarterly and should have the basic duties to analyze the legal and regulatory requirements, assess, develop, and regularly review policies and procedures, monitor and recommend internal systems and controls, assess education and training needs and effectiveness and conduct regular reviews of training, develop a disclosure program and promote compliance reporting, assess effectiveness of the program and reporting mechanisms, conduct an annual risk assessment, develop the compliance work plan, evaluate the effectiveness of the compliance work plan, and evaluate the effectiveness of the program itself. The compliance officer is charged with responsibility for chairing that committee, and it should include relevant leaders of operational and supporting departments, such as billing and coding, clinical and medical, finance, internal audit, IT, human resources, legal quality, risk management, sales, security, marketing, and other operational managers. Also, the compliance officer should assist the committee in identifying and reporting on committee objectives and whatever objectives they oversee. Now, in the compliance guidance also is important information with regard to board oversight of the compliance program and the responsibilities and the requirement that the board shall, quote, be knowledgeable about the contents and operation of the compliance and ethics programs and shall exercise reasonable oversight of the program. The board has to specifically oversee the compliance officer and the compliance committee and review information necessary to understand the entity's compliance risks and must have access to sufficient 
knowledge and resources to fulfill its obligations. To this end, the board has to oversee and support the compliance officer to make sure the officer has sufficient power, independence, and resources to implement, maintain, and monitor the entity's compliance program and advise the board about the entity's operations and risk. And the board must ensure that the compliance officer has a stature commensurate with other senior leaders and has direct and uninhibited access to the board and is free to inform the board of compliance risks without fear of personal or financial repercussions. As part of its oversight responsibilities, the board has to monitor the performance of the compliance committee to ensure that it is effectively operating, reaching decisions on important issues, and exercising appropriate responsibility for the operation of the compliance program. Now, with regard to written policies and procedures, the guidance cites the importance of policies and procedures as providing a roadmap for all relevant individuals, outlining their duties, developing workflow management, imposing documentation requirements and oversight roles and controls entity-wide to mitigate compliance risks. A code of conduct and compliance policies are essential elements of any compliance program. And the code of conduct is an important statement of an organization's mission, goals, and ethical requirements. And the code, in combination with applicable policies and procedures, should be regularly updated as statutes, regulations, and federal health care program requirements change. The guidance assumes that a compliance committee should ensure that the organization has appropriate practices to ensure that the policies and procedures are kept up to date. All organizations should have a policy and procedure for screening employees, contractors, for the exclusion lists, and to make sure that nobody is employed is excluded. That's a big risk, and it's kind of like a due diligence requirement in analogous circumstances. Some general tips from the guidance is that the CEOs should include, at a minimum, a signed introduction in the Code of Conduct. The board should include a signed endorsement or similar written statement to support the compliance commitment. And entities should review their codes when a new CEO is hired in order to update the CEO's statements, references, and endorsements. Organizations also can rely on a contractor to conduct the screening requirements we mentioned just a minute ago, but OIG has recommended several steps to validate that the contractor is satisfying that screening requirement. With regard to training and education, the guidance directs organizations to establish a multifaceted education and training program, and each year there should be a plan that includes training topics and the target audience. And it should incorporate any issues identified in audits, investigations, and risk assessments that need to be addressed. The training program has to include at least annual training for all board members, officers, employees, contractors, and medical staff. And of course, targeted training programs should be tailored to specific risks and audiences and can include issues like billing, coding, documentation, licensing requirements, medical necessity, beneficiary inducements, gifts, interactions with physicians, and other sources or recipients of referrals of federal health care program business. As to other issues that the guidance addresses, we have effective lines of communications where this guidance stresses the importance of communication between the compliance officer and entity personnel so that concerns can be raised as a means to reduce potential fraud, waste, and abuse. There should be multiple channels for communications, including email, telephone, internet, messaging, 
and the channels should be publicized in physical and virtual spaces. And there needs to be at least one avenue that allows anonymity and anonymous reporting. The compliance committee itself should develop independent reporting paths for an employee to report violations of law and entity policies and procedures to the committee. And there should not be ever a statement made, and this is an interesting practice here, that should request or require that employees first bring concerns to their manager or supervisor before contacting the compliance officer or the compliance committee. Interestingly, the guidance notes that frequent communications from the same department or employees of the same supervisor may be used to identify an area of concern to be investigated. All reports relating to compliance should be recorded in a log maintained by the compliance officer or his or her designee, and they should be logged whether they are made directly to the compliance officer or other compliance personnel, to a leader or manager, to the committee, or through an anonymous reporting mechanism. With respect to consequences and incentives, obviously the guidance points out the importance of consequences for misconduct or violations or noncompliance, other types of, let's say, unintentional noncompliance. The severity should depend upon the person's state of mind, whether it was intentional or reckless, and the position and obligations that they have as supervisory and non-supervisory roles. Entities should also develop incentives to encourage compliance, and obviously this includes ways in which there can be additional compensation, significant recognition, or other forms of encouragement. The Compliance Committee and other leaders should review whether the entity's other incentive plans, like sales goals, admission goals for hospitals, may inadvertently encourage risky or non-compliant behavior. And that's also another good practice to follow. The guidance notes that organizations, by the way, with regard to risk assessments, have placed increasing emphasis upon the importance of a formal compliance risk assessment process, which should be completed at a minimum of every year. A formal compliance risk assessments process should be based on internal or external sources. You can use outside contractors if you want. The compliance committee should be responsible for conducting and implementing the risk assessment and they may rely on assistance from other functions like compliance, audit, quality, and risk management functions. Data analytics should be used to identify compliance risk areas. There should be a work plan set up for each year, and they should make sure that there's some auditing and monitoring that occurs with regard to medical necessity items and because that's such a hot area these days for compliance programs. Then there's the issue of how do you respond to detected offenses and developing corrective action initiatives. And this is a quote from the guidance. It is inevitable that a compliance officer will receive audit or monitoring results that raise concerns or receive a report through the reporting program that requires investigation. And there should be processes and resources to thoroughly investigate compliance concerns. And compliance officers should act promptly and notify leaders and coordinate with counsel as needed to determine whether a violation has occurred and whether an internal investigation should be conducted. A contemporaneous record of the investigation should be maintained. If credible evidence of misconduct is discovered and the officer or counsel has reason to believe that this conduct may violate criminal, civil, or administrative law, then the entity should promptly, within 60 days, report the misconduct to the government. 
And to implement corrective actions, the entities should take prompt actions, including refunding of overpayments, enforcing its disciplinary policies and procedures, and changing policies or procedures to prevent a recurrence. Now, throughout the investigation, the compliance officer should focus on the root causes of the misconduct and based upon its analysis, working with the compliance committee, make sure that their necessary steps are taken to prevent recurrence of the misconduct and remediate any identified areas of vulnerability. Well, that's a quick overview of what was in the guidance. There are a lot of good suggestions, recommendations. I'd urge you to take a look at it. And it's a good place to sort of create almost a checklist in your mind as to how your program is and compare it to some of the important ideas included in the guidance. Happy New Year again to everybody. Good to be back in 2024 and looking forward to a great year. We'll be back next week with another episode of Corruption Crime Compliance. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com. 